Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today Attorney Ginny Peterson from the law firm of Kite, Laguna, and Gray, with offices in Indianapolis, Evansville, and New Albany, Indiana. Ginny is a partner with the firm and practices in the areas of insurance coverage, insurance defense litigation, and legal malpractice defense. She is also an author and speaker on various insurance matters and a member of DRI. In addition, she is a CPCU and president-elect of the Central Indiana CPCU chapter. Ginny, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Our topic today is on the recent ruling involving Carolina Casualty Insurance Company. The courts upheld a decision on liability in a trucking accident, limiting the payout to the overall accident as opposed to each named individual in the incident. This is actually a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals federal ruling on an appeal of a district court ruling. And Brendan Noonan leads off today with our first question. Jenny, can you provide a brief summary on this case? Certainly. As with many cases, the facts of the underlying lawsuit that led to this uh, insurance coverage action are simple but tragic. On August 21, 2005, Stan Gill was driving a tractor trailer for net trucking, which rear-ended a vehicle stopped in a construction zone on the Indiana Toll Road. The collision set off a chain reaction, which led to the death of four people and substantial bodily injury to numerous individuals and property damage both to vehicles and to the Indiana Toll Road itself. Now, the insurance side of the case is that Net Trucking and Gill were both insured under an insurance policy issued by Carolina Casualty. That policy stated that its maximum limit of liability for an accident is $1 million, regardless of the number of claimants or the number of vehicles involved in the accident. The policy included an MCS 90 endorsement, which is maximum limit of liability under the insurance policy, with $1 million. Now, the procedural history of this case is somewhat interesting, and it's got two different legal approaches, interpleader and declaratory judgment. So I'll just go through a little bit of the procedural history. Carolina Casualty initiated an interpleader, depositing what it believed to be its maximum limit of liability of $1 million into the federal court and asked the court to declare that this $1 million is applicable for the entire accident and asked the court to decide how those insurance proceeds should be distributed to the claimants. And the claimants in this situation were the injured parties. Carolina Casualty named as defendants Gill, the driver, Net Trucking, the actual company, and the individuals who were injured in the motor vehicle accident or those who filed claims arising out of that accident, such as the estates of some of the uh, deceased individuals. The parties to the interpleader action filed cross motions for summary judgment. Carolina Casualty argued that its policy plainly and unambiguously limited its obligations under the insurance policy to $1 million for any given accident and did not establish a per-person liability minimum. The claimants, on the other hand, argued that instead the Carolina casualty policy should be held to what they argued to be the statutory requirement under the Federal Motor Carrier Act, and what they argued it to be was $750,000 limit per person. The district court ruled in favor of Carolina casualty, 
holding that the limit of liability under its insurance policy was clearly $1 million per accident, and that neither the Notary Carrier Act nor the MCS 90 endorsement attached to the policy established a $750,000 per person policy minimum. The estate of one of the deceased individuals, Dmitry Karpov, appealed to the Seventh Circuit. Now, the Seventh Circuit affirmed the district court's decision, finding that the limit of liability included within the Carolina casualty policy of a million dollars applies to an entire accident and that there is no per-person minimum limit. The court evaluated the statutory requirements for entities subject to the Motor Carrier Act. It found that the Motor Carrier Act required that an entity here, such as Gill and Net Trucking, had a financial responsibility limit under the law of $750,000. It found that the statute, the Motor Carrier Act, likewise states that the insurance carrier, which issued a policy to these folks, must pay no more than the amount of the security pledged, which is defined as the limit of liability. The only applicable reference in the statute is that the minimum financial responsibility is $750,000. Therefore, because the policy issued by Carolina Casualty exceeded that amount of $750,000, it it was a million, it met the requirements, and that the most the Carolina Casualty would need to pay under its policy is the limit of liability. Now, the court found three problems with Karpov's argument. First, it stated that the Motor Carrier Act does not mandate a $750,000 per person limit. Second, even if the statute did establish such a minimum, The endorsement, the MCS 90, requires only that the insurance carrier pay within the limits stated herein, that is $1 million. And the third reason it gave was that the Secretary of Transportation, a federal agency, had as its obligation to set forth the appropriate form, that is the MCS 90 endorsement, which specifically states that the policy insurance is primary and that the company, that is the insurance company, should not be liable for amounts in excess of some dollar amount for each accident. In other words, the Secretary of Transportation, who has the authority to mandate the appropriate form to be used on the insurance policies, clearly stated that the limit of liability is per accident and does not even list as an option a per-person limit of liability. Thus, the Seventh Circuit construed a federal statute to assist in the interpretation under federal law to the language of a Carolina policy. And hopefully this summary will assist in understanding of the case itself. Okay. Um, is it a common practice for an insurer to uh, seek a declaratory judgment in a case like this? Yes. A declaratory judgment action is fairly common for an insurance company. Now, the second type of, of legal approach used, the interpleader, is probably less common, but still happens considerably. In this case, Carolina Casualty sought a declaratory judgment in addition to its interpleader. First, let me talk about the interpleader just a minute. An interpleader is an action in which an entity with a financial obligation, generally an insurance company, seeks to deposit its full limit of liability or obligation and allow the court to distribute and allocate the monies to the appropriate parties. The defendants or claimants to the insurance proceeds must interplead, that's the word that's used, to the court, and they have to argue to the court what they believe their damages are and how the monies should be allocated. And particularly, the defendants usually argue that they should receive all or the majority of the insurance proceeds. The claimants are thus in competition with one another for the limited insurance proceeds. 
an insurance company will file an interpleader when it recognizes that its entire limit of liability is most probably going to be paid and that it is insufficient to satisfy all of the claims that have been made against the policyholder. Carolina Casualty, as many insurance companies, also seek a declaratory judgment at the same time as the interpleader because what they want to do is ask the court to determine that its policy obligations are exhausted by the payment of that deposit into the court. And the insurance company asks that as a result thereof, it should be dismissed from any further obligations. In other words, it's done with the case. This interpleader and declaratory judgment often entails a coverage interpretation. A declaratory judgment is filed to ask the court to verify or confirm the insurance company's interpretation of its policy language. In this case, the Carolina Casualty case, the limit of liability. Now, it's common for an insurance company to file a declaratory judgment action. A declaratory judgment action is usually filed so that an insurance company can validate its own interpretation of its policy language and secondly, to protect itself from paying more than its legal obligation. For instance, an insurance company may question whether it has insurance coverage to a policyholder. Because in some states and under some certain conditions, the insurance company may be stopped or will waive its coverage defenses without a court determination of coverage, an insurance company will file a complaint for declaratory judgment requesting this determination. In other times, the insurance company will file a declaratory judgment with the approval of its policyholder that will be named as a defendant so that the dispute can be settled objectively and quickly. Lastly, an insurance company may file a declaratory judgment merely to conclude a matter and to give it that peace of mind that its interpretation is correct for that case and to give the company kind of leadership, if you will, for other analogous cases which may be presented to it in the future. A federal statute provides the mechanism for such a complaint. States likewise have statutes that allow both interpleader and declaratory judgment actions to be filed. Okay, Jenny, earlier you mentioned the MCS 90 endorsement. Can you explain that a little bit? Certainly. The MCS 90 endorsement is a mandatory endorsement to an insurance policy for any entity such as a trucking firm, which is subject to the rules of the Federal Department of Transportation and specifically to the Motor Carrier Act. The MCS 90 endorsement, the language of which, as I stated before, is prescribed by the Secretary of Transportation, states that the situations under which a motor carrier is required to have a certain level of responsibility. So let me step back a minute. The Secretary of Transportation may register a motor carrier for interstate commerce only if the registrant files with the Secretary a bond, an insurance policy, or some other type of security approved by the Secretary in an amount not less than whatever the amount is, either prescribed by statute or by the Secretary. A registration for that, in this case, trucking firm, remains in effect only as long as the registrant continues to satisfy those security regulations. The Secretary of Transportation may require a registered motor vehicle to file with the Secretary a type of security sufficient in order to pay for both cargo and for bodily injury and property damage to the general public. These minimum levels of financial responsibility are set forth by federal law for the transporting of passengers and property by motor carriers. The purpose of these federal regulations setting forth these minimum limits of financial responsibility for motor carriers 
is to create additional incentives to motor carriers to maintain and operate their vehicles in a safe manner and to assure that the motor carriers maintain an appropriate level of financial responsibility for motor vehicles operated on the public highways. A motor vehicle carrier may also be required to file a bond, insurance, policy, or other type of security, which is sufficient to pay for a judgment against the motor carrier for bodily injury or death of an individual that results from negligent operation, maintenance, or use of the motor vehicle, or for loss or damage to property, or both. The purpose underlying this proof of insurance requirement is that the carrier have an independent financial responsibility to pay for losses. And in this situation, what really is of interest here is this is a public policy type legislation, which is to ensure that the general public has protection from the trucking operations in case something goes awry. Now, the regulations related to the Motor Carrier Act require that liability insurance policies provided to these motor carriers include this MCS-90 endorsement. Now, this endorsement, pursuant to some other rulings from courts, such as the Fourth Circuit in a case by the name of John Deere versus Nuvo, in, it's spelled N-U-E-V-O, states that federal law applies to the operation and effect of those endorsements. So the MCS-90 endorsement provides, in pertinent part, now I'll give you just some of the language of that endorsement. It says that based upon the premium that's stated in the policy, the insurance policy, the insurance company agrees to pay, and it says specifically within the limits of liability described in the endorsement, any judgment that might be recovered against the insured, again, here the, the, the trucking firm, for instance, resulting from the negligence of the motor vehicle. And interestingly, what that endorsement says, it says, regardless of whether or not each motor vehicle is specifically described in the policy. Now, what's interesting about that is the MCS-90 endorsement says it doesn't really matter if the vehicle involved in the accident is actually listed on the policy or is even covered under the policy. This MCS-90 endorsement says as long as the named insured or any insured are driving vehicles that are subject to these Department of Transportation regulations, then the policy will pay for injury to other parties up to the limit of liability. And that's very interesting because what happens in this MCS-90 endorsement is that the endorsement or the insurance company now has an obligation to pay for these damages. But if the insurance company does pay for damages and then later determines that the trucking firm or the truck operator did not have coverage for that vehicle, the insurance company under this endorsement can then ask to be reimbursed by its own policyholder. But that's where the public policy part of the Motor Carrier Act comes in. The general public is protected. The injured persons or property is compensated up to the amount of the liability insurance limit, but then if there is not coverage under the insurance policy, then the insurance company can actually go against its own policyholder to get its money back. But the protection is there, and that's been found by, again, the Seventh Circuit, the same circuit that found the determination in the Carolina casualty case just in, in 2005, actually, with that finding. 
So the motor carrier insurer has indemnification rights against its own policyholder if the vehicle involved is not otherwise covered. The motor vehicle carrier in these reimbursement rights under this endorsement aren't governed by federal law. Those rights are contractual rights that are determined by state law. Again, that is pursuant to a case by the name of the insurance company B. Larson in the Fifth Circuit in 2001. The MCS-90 endorsement thus makes consistent the level of financial responsibility among the various states in which a motor carrier may operate. For instance, in the absence of the Motor Carrier Act or this MCS-90 endorsement, an interstate trucking firm which travels from one state to another might find that when it crossed the border of one state, it has a different level of financial responsibility to anyone that it may injure than another state. Congress recognized that interstate trucking required one set of rules as opposed to 50 sets of rules, and because it qualifies as interstate commerce, it then enacted this Motor Carrier Act that had this piece or this part of the legislation. The Motor Carrier Act, in turn, led to the development of the MCS-90 endorsement, which is a requirement that each interstate trucker have on its policy to ensure this consistency and to protect the general public against injuries that the general public may incur as a result of that trucking entity. Beyond the uh, issues uh, brought up in this case, uh, how uniform are truckers' liability coverages from state to state? In, in general, the liability coverages for trucking firms from state to state are fairly uniform. Um, as for the MCS-90 endorsement, as we talked before, that's really a federally mandated endorsement, and the language of that endorsement you will find on every trucker's policy. What you might find, however, is that a trucker may elect to have higher limits of liability on their insurance policies because after the insurance company pays, if there is still additional injuries out there um, and the insurance company has exhausted its limits, then the trucker or the trucking firm itself could be held liable for those additional or excessive verdicts or judgments. And so a trucker might elect to have higher limits of liability than what's applicable under the MCS-90 or so forth. A trucker may also buy umbrella insurance coverage, which can give it coverage not only over its limit of liability, but might in some situations give it additional coverage that could be excluded under a, a, a trucker's insurance policy. But for the most part, I think we see most truckers, because of the federally mandated requirements, have similar coverage, but they may, again, based upon their own protection of their own assets, need to buy additional coverage that might cover either more, in particular, higher limits of liability in case there are higher verdicts. Okay, Jenny, any chance that this case will be further appealed? Well, this decision has been made by the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And inherent in the decision is actually an agreement, and the reason I say this is inherent in that decision is an agreement with a case in the Fourth Circuit. The only appeal that could be taken of this case, the only way to go is up, is the highest court in the land, which is the United States Supreme Court. While we have, at least to date, and this is a recent case, but we have to date seen no indication that this case will either be requested for a rehearing of the Seventh Circuit for instance, asking the Seventh Circuit to reconsider because of of additional facts or appeal to the United States Supreme Court, we would doubt the acceptance of the case by the United States Supreme Court. And and here's why. Cases in the courts of appeal, such as the Seventh Circuit, may be reviewed by the Supreme Court by writ of certioria, granted upon the petition of any party. 
there are almost no technical barriers to what the United States Supreme Court can accept. But it's entirely up to the Supreme Court to determine what it wants to accept as far as an appeal. The very general language of the statute is intended by Congress to vest in the Supreme Court a pretty comprehensive power over any case that has come from the Circuit Court of Appeals. So if the Supreme Court would like to take the case, it could certainly do so. However, the Supreme Court's discretion that it may have, it's ordinarily reluctant to accept this jurisdiction with respect to certain cases, and it will usually only be granted for compelling reasons. And generally, uh, in what's presented in, in, in statute, what the Supreme Court usually looks at is whether the United States Courts of Appeal have entered a decision in conflict. So in other words, if the Seventh Circuit is in conflict with the Fifth Circuit, which is in conflict with the Tenth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court may take an appeal like that because there's disagreement in that, and particularly in a federal statute, there needs to be consistency and understanding. To date, I haven't been able to find that there's that level of disagreement. So it may be possible that the parties could attempt to appeal this case, but perhaps a case similar to this could be appealed if another circuit comes up with a different decision. Some of the other reasons why the United States Supreme Court might not accept this kind of thing is that it may not consider it to be a substantial enough federal question or that it may look at it and say this is merely a statutory construction and the Seventh Circuit construed it correctly. So that what the parties will do will be to look at the characteristics of what the Supreme Court will or will not accept to see if it is valid. The Seventh Circuit didn't seem to leave any doors open in its interpretation of the MCS 90 and the Motor Carrier Act. It seemed fairly definitive. So it will be very curious to see if there is an appeal and we certainly don't see one at this time. Okay, thanks so much, Jenny. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. That was Jenny Peterson from the law firm of Keitlinger and Gray with offices in Indianapolis, Evansville, and New Albany, Indiana. Special thanks to Brandon Ninnan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. And if you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year 
year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 